today we're going to be uh, reading in John chapter 20, continuing our study of John's gospel, skipping ahead to, to Easter Sunday. And today we're going to meet five different individuals or groups of people in John chapter 20, maybe in their response to meeting the risen Savior and hearing of his getting back up from the dead. Maybe you'll find yourself in one of these stories today, the five individuals that we will meet have popped up earlier in John's Gospel. And so we kind of pick them up in the middle of their stories, but there's Mary Magdalene, she's the one who was there with uh, Lazarus at his resurrection. She was the one who anointed Jesus' feet with this precious uh, fragrance that, that she had saved up, this precious perfume that she poured out on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. So we're gonna meet Mary Magdalene in the, in the resurrection story here in John 20. We're also going to meet two of Jesus' disciples by name. One of them is the author of John's Gospel, John himself. And he refers to himself, now writing this eyewitness account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. He refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. And what a beautiful way of speaking of himself. It's not in arrogance. It's not in contrast to the other disciples as if, you know, I'm a little bit cooler than these other guys. But this is his identity. Now, I'm the one that Jesus loved, and, and in John's Gospel, the word love is more than just kind of a warm, tingly, goosebump feeling of affection. Because back in John 3, 16, that most famous verse that you see people holding up in the cardboard signs at the hockey game, right? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And wrapped up in that idea of love, is sacrifice and gift. And John refers to himself as the disciple, the follower that Jesus loved, that Jesus sacrificed for, that Jesus gave himself up for, that Jesus chose to pour out his love as a gift. We'll need another uh, reaction here in, in the person of Peter. Peter, you know, three days after the, the crucifixion, all he can hear and remember is that sound of the rooster crowing and a recollection of his conversation with Jesus on the week of his betrayal and arrest and crucifixion, the, the mock trial. When Peter zealously, as he always does, kind of speaks before he really thinks, I'm willing to die for you, Jesus. Oh, really, Peter? Well, before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you even know me. And then that story was carried out. As time and again, he, he said, I do not know him. I'm not one of his disciples. No, I don't know him. And then that rooster crowed. And now Peter is, is here on the day that the stone is rolled away. And, and what's his reaction? Prior to the face-to-face -face meeting with Jesus in the next chapter that you'll have to read on your own, where Jesus asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? And he gives him an opportunity to undo each of those denials earlier in John's Gospel. Another group of people that we'll meet are the disciples besides John and Peter who are locked up in a room in fear. They're afraid of the Jews. They're afraid of what will happen to them. The one that they have been following as the Messiah they had hoped for has been put to death under Roman law and by the Jewish officials, and now they're living in fear behind locked doors. How did they encounter the risen Jesus? And then finally, we meet 
One more disciple mentioned by name, Thomas. Doubting Thomas, who really has the mindset of seeing is believing. And so maybe in one of these five stories, you'll see yourself, and there'll be a challenge for you as you encounter the risen Savior today. Let's begin here in John chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, right, right here in the, in the very first verse of John 20, there's some echoes of some things that we've seen earlier in John's Gospel. Notice that it doesn't say, now on the third day after the crucifixion, there's a whole new week starting. There's a new work of creation, just like we saw in John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Echoes of Genesis 1, that first week of creation, Get ready because there's a new work of creation beginning. It's the first day of the week, but it's still dark. Just like it was in Genesis 1. Darkness was over the face of the earth. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and God said, let there be light. And there's a new light going forth. There's a new work of creation. It's a whole new week, and there's something big about to happen. And so in the midst of the darkness and the sorrow, you know, we had a, a Monday Thursday service that Pastor Joey and the youth team put together on Thursday night. Maybe you were part of a Good Friday service somewhere in the area. And you know, the Monday Thursday or the Good Friday service is really sorrow and mourning mixed with hope because we know the end of the story, right? But, but on this Easter Sunday, there was no hope or joy because the end of the story had not been written yet. And it was darkness for Mary Magdalene, the one whose feet she had wiped with her hair, the one that she had poured out the precious oil on, and really a double symbolism, anointing as you would a king, and yet also Jesus had preparation for burial. That's what he did with these fragrant oils that were precious and valuable. And so really a double symbolism there in her action, and now it's the darkness of that Sunday morning. The one that she loved, the Messiah, the one that she hoped in, the one whose miracles she had seen, whose teachings she had heard is now gone, and it's dark. And she goes to the tomb to mourn, but there's something unexpected, the stone is rolled away. It's been taken away from the tomb. And her response in verse 2, so she ran, and she went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Mary ran, and she's not yet understanding fully what's happening here. Her interpretation of these events is that the body of Jesus has been taken, and it's as if there's uh, more grief heaped onto what has already taken place. She arrives there and now kind of passes the baton to these other disciples and we'll see how they react. So it says in verse 3, Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. John would have been younger than Peter, so he 
you know, again, it's not, I don't, I don't see this as John being arrogant. Like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a faster runner than Peter. You know, this is John as an older man. We think that this was written around 30 years after the events that are recorded here. So John on the Isle of Patmos reflecting back and thinking, it's important that I document my eyewitness experience of the risen saviors so that future generations will know what really happened. And one of the details he remembers is that he outran Peter to the tomb. And yet when he gets there, he doesn't go in immediately. Verse 5, stooping to look in, he, John, saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Again, maybe, maybe it seems to us granular detail, about this arrival at the tomb, and yet John feels it's important to really document precisely exactly what happened on that day. There's some contrast here to the resurrection of Jesus uh, and an earlier story of a resuscitation of another dead man, but in a whole different way. His name is Lazarus. If you go back earlier to John's Gospel, you can read that story. You'll remember that when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead there in John chapter 11, Lazarus is called out of the tomb by Jesus, and he kind of comes hobbling out, tied up, bound up with the linen uh, cloths and spices intermingled that they would use to bury a dead body in the first century, with that face cloth still in place. And Jesus actually has to instruct people to unbind Lazarus and let him go. Well, in contrast to that picture, Peter and John enter a, an empty tomb where the linen cloths are intact and in place. The spices are still interwoven within that linen fabric. And the, and the face shroud is, is rolled up and set aside. I won't be needing that anymore. There's something about the body of Jesus post-death and resurrection that's different from what we saw with Lazarus. Lazarus in chapter 12, the Pharisees said, let's kill him again. We have this guy is problematic because people are coming to Jesus to find out who is this guy that has raised a man from the dead. Let's kill him again. We don't want to start a movement and uprising. Let's kill him again. And yet with Jesus, there's something different about this new transfigured body that's able to leave the grave clothes laying in place, fold up that face cloth. No, no one needed to come and unbind him. There's something different happening here. And yet for Peter and John, they're not really aware of exactly what's transpiring at this point in the story. So after Peter goes in and he sees the face cloth, the linen cloths lying there in all the grave clothes. Verse 8, then the other disciple who, reached, who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. And perhaps today on this Easter Sunday, maybe you identify with either John or Peter. 
in this Easter story. Maybe like Peter, you've got some echoes of your past mistakes ringing in your ears. And you've got a deep sense of guilt and remorse. And on this Easter Sunday when we're talking about new life and peace and forgiveness, you have a hard time grabbing hold of that because all you can see is your own reflection in the mirror of your past failures and hurts. And maybe today, if, if that's you, if you're in Peter's shoes, you need to read ahead to chapter 21, when Jesus comes in grace and in forgiveness and singles Peter out and says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Because Peter, I loved you, and I poured it all out on the cross for you. And you're not trapped in that old person that you used to be anymore because you've been set free from your sin. You can now experience peace with God, and there's hope for your future. Or maybe you're like John in the story where you do have that belief, and yet you don't have the full understanding. Did you see that in verses 8 and 9? John saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the Scripture. Maybe that's where you are this Easter Sunday morning. You know that you are the disciple that Jesus loves. You've grabbed a hold of that, and you believe but you don't fully understand. Well, I challenge you, search the scriptures. God has given us his revealed written word, and it's a gift. It's a love letter that we can open and read and know and understand and discover more of who he is and who we are in him. Or maybe today you're more like Mary, and her story continues here in verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Let me just pause for a moment. If you're in the first century and you want to fabricate a story that will convince people that Jesus is the Messiah, even though you know that he's just another dead guy, this is not a good way to do it. If you're gonna make up a story, don't put angels in the story. That doesn't improve the credibility of your story in the first century or in the 21st century, right? You know, like today, if you're gonna convince someone, probably don't bring up, yeah, I saw a couple of angels. They're gonna go, okay, you're out on a field. We're gonna, we're gonna call somebody that can get you, you some help, okay? And that's exactly what would have happened in the first century as well. It's not that this is a naive, simplistic, uh, you know, worldview of, of mythology, mythological worldview here in the first century. Where, oh, yeah, everybody's running around saying, oh, yeah, a couple of angels showed up, told me something. No, this is a really bad idea if you're going to make up a story. And the only reasonable explanation that I can have for why are these angels appearing in John's eyewitness account is because this is actually what happened. There's no other reason that someone would include this. It doesn't improve the credibility of the story. So these angels actually give the story a ring of authenticity. John's just saying, I'm just telling it like it is. Mary saw two angels, and they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw 
Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Again, there's something different about this risen Jesus. She didn't immediately recognize him. She loved him. She had served him. She'd been up close enough to be touching his feet with her hair. She should recognize him when she sees him. And yet maybe it's because of the disconnect from her grief and pain to this unexpected encounter with the risen Jesus. Or maybe there's something different about this transfigured body, this risen Jesus, that she didn't immediately recognize him. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus simply spoke her name and said to her, Mary. And at that moment, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, and she recognized him. So it was at that moment of Jesus speaking her name that all of a sudden she saw him for who he is. Perhaps today you identify with Mary in this story, where in your encounter with Jesus, it's a one-on-one experience at some point in your past. Maybe it's happening right now today. Maybe you didn't recognize him for who he really is. Maybe church was just a tradition that your family had practiced and you kind of got dragged along with that. But today, you hear him speaking your name and you see him for who he really is. And it all clicks and it all makes sense. And you're able to say with Mary as we read in verse 18, we're coming up, I have seen the Lord. And maybe that's your heart in that one-on-one personal encounter with Jesus. But in verse 17, here's what Jesus says to her. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And then he had said these things to her. Once again, Mary really, Mary Magdalene as the eyewitness, the first person who has seen the risen Jesus. If this is a fabrication, if this is just a fairy tale, again, a very bad way of doing it in the first century. And ladies, I mean no disrespect, this is purely a, a little historical tidbit. But in the first century, a woman could not testify in a court of law. Her, her uh her eyewitness testimony was not considered valid or reputable. Thankfully, we've come a long way uh, in that, partly because of the gospel. The gospel liberates women. It liberates the oppressed. It liber- liberates the marginalized. It's a, a unifying uh, posture that we all come to Jesus fully dependent, no one of us superior to another despite our age, our gender, our race, our background, our nationality. That's part of the beauty of the gospel. We're all on an equal playing field as creatures of the one creator, God fully dependent upon him. But at this time in history, women were marginalized, uh, repressed, 
held in suspicion when it comes to a story like this. And so if you're going to make up a story, you don't have Mary Magdalene be the supposed person who saw Jesus and then comes with the eyewitness account, he's risen. Now, you, you would maybe do something like, you know, then Peter and John came and they, they saw the empty grave, and so they went and got an official Roman person in uniform or a, a high-ranking Jewish Pharisee to come and, and they verify and validate, yes, it is true. In fact, we've seen him face to face. You know, you get somebody important like that whose testimony would hold up in the court of law. And the presence of Mary Magdalene as the first person who saw Jesus as an eyewitness gives this another ring of authenticity. It makes the story more credible. The best explanation is because this is exactly how it happened. And so Mary proclaims good news and she announces good news to a world that is still mourning, still obscured in darkness. She brings God's light. She doesn't keep it to herself. And if you identify with Mary today as one who has met Jesus face to face, one-on-one, heard him speak your name, and that joy is bubbling up inside you as you see him as he is, don't keep it to yourself. Proclaim good news. Say like Mary did, I have seen the Lord. There's a lost and hurting world that needs that message of hope. Well, there's another group that meets Jesus, and we find them in a place of fear here in verse 19. On the evening of that same day, the first day of the week, in case you forgot, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Let's just pause there. You know, we've come through a pretty rough week in terms of news stories. Not only the the prayer request from this morning, but it is close to home when our own school district shuts down for a day. When we're commemorating a very dark day from 20 years ago, right here in our area. And there's fear and locked doors are very relevant to our world today. And maybe you identify with these disciples You're looking at the world around us, maybe the kids or grandkids that you're trying to raise, and and you fear, what kind of a world are we handing to them? Where can I go to be safe? Can we go to church on Easter Sunday morning and be safe? Can my kids show up at a Cherry Creek school this week and be safe? And that fear and that desire to just lock the door and hide out may be very real to you. Well, let me give you some hope today, and, and you'll experience some hope here in this Easter story, because in that place of fear behind locked doors, the second part of verse 19, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Now, this didn't uh, negate the threat to Jesus' followers. The fact that Jesus showed up in the room with the door still locked and spoke these words, peace be with you, didn't remove the threat of persecution from these first century believers, these first century followers of Christ. And yet it enabled them to have the resilience and the confidence and the peace to get up on another Monday morning, put their pants on one leg at a time, head off to work or school, 
and bring good news to a world that desperately needs it. What happens if all of Jesus' followers hide out behind locked doors in fear? And the good news is not going to go forth. And darkness is going to triumph. And so even if there are threats, even if there is persecution, we keep pressing on in the name of the risen Savior because the good news is worth spreading. And Jesus shows up again. This, this body of his that is a part of our resurrection. Oh, we don't fully understand it. We know that somehow he can leave grave clothes behind intact. That somehow he can appear to people who know him. One moment they don't recognize him, the next they do. That he's able to now enter rooms that are locked and just show up. And there's something about this risen Jesus that's connected to who he was, but it's a new work of creation. It gives us a glimpse of what we have to look forward to because resurrection is in our future as well. If you are a son or daughter of the king, if you follow the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior, and he shows up and says, peace be with you. And in verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, which had been pierced by the, by the spear as he hung on the cross. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. If, if you're in that place of identifying with the disciples on this Easter Sunday, where really your story is defined by the fear, or maybe where you're at today or this week, you've got that fear, you've got the desire to just hide out behind a locked door. Know that when Jesus shows up and enters the room, you're in for peace and gladness to replace that fear and that sorrow that put you in that room. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So it's not just that we have Jesus come into the room and keep the door locked and stay there feeling more glad now that he's here. But immediately Jesus said, I'm sending you. You're gonna to have to unlock the door. You're gonna to have to go out because there's a world in need of forgiveness. And I'm sending you out as ambassadors into this world that's hostile and dangerous. But don't worry, you don't have to go in your own power. I'm giving you my Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8 says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, here locally, in our region, in our nation, and to the very ends of the earth, where there's great darkness, and where there's fear, and where there's people not knowing that their sins can be forgiven because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. So there is a mission there's a commission that's given to each of the followers of Jesus, including those of us in this room today. A mission to bring that message of peace and forgiveness to a lost and hurting world. Well, there's one more disciple that we're going to meet here at the end of John 20. And he's popped up before in John's Gospel. 
But today there's a, a, a one-on-one encounter that he has with Jesus, and maybe you identify with Thomas today. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. This is actually a pretty common, popular worldview today, right? If I say to you, seeing is believing, how many of you kind of nod and agree? Yeah, yeah, exactly, right, yeah. That, that's that's the, the worldview that Thomas is espousing right here in John 20. He said, well, you can, you, know, you can tell me your perspective, but unless I personally see it, observe it, unless I can put it in a, in a beaker and observe it under a mic- microscope, scientifically, unless I can apply my enlightenment rationalism to this question, I'm not going to just take your experiential word for it. I need to see with my own eyes before I believe. And yet Jesus is about to come and take that common sense and invert it in an unexpected way for Thomas and maybe for you today if you're in Thomas's shoes. So eight days later, and again, the passage of time. So, you know, the other disciples, Mary, Peter, John, and they're they're living in gladness and joy. Thomas is still in doubt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you guys all claim this, but I, I really have a hard time believing this until I see it with my own eyes. Jesus lets eight days go by before he resolves this. And then eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Kind of of two things going on here. First of all, Jesus loves Thomas enough to come to him in that place of doubt and say, Thomas, if that's what you need, I'll provide the evidence that you need. If that's what you require before you put faith in me, I'll show you yet one more sign and increase your faith. But Thomas, the same thing that we've seen all throughout John's Gospel, genuine faith is not connected to the signs and the miracles that Jesus does. Genuine faith takes Jesus at his word. And it begins by looking at the person of Jesus, not at his actions. And so maybe for you today, you're kind of stuck in that rut that Thomas was in for eight days. And you're saying, well, unless I really see God do something, see God answer a prayer, see him work in this circumstance in my life, I'm still going to disbelieve. Really, that's a choice and a decision that you're making. And at the end of this encounter with Thomas, 
Jesus says there's an extra blessing for the people who believe first, and the belief leads to seeing. Jesus really, the conversion is that Jesus says believing is seeing. And today on this Easter Sunday, there's, there's a call, there's a promise that if we put faith in the risen Savior, if we go all in in believing and trusting in Him, then our eyes are going to be opened. Then things are going to begin to make sense. Then we'll see ourselves as we are and see reality in this world as it really is. He'll give us the eyes to see. And He'll equip us by His Holy Spirit to walk faithfully in His kingdom. And then... John summarizes all that we've heard here on this Easter Sunday with these two verses at the end of John chapter 20. What's it all about? Why, why these eyewitness encounters with Jesus? Why these stories? What is this whole narrative really about? The purpose. Verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. You know, it's, it's getting long enough. There was a lot of cool stuff happening. It's not all documented here. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. That word basically means king. He's the christened one. He's the anointed one. In the Old Testament, the word was Messiah. That you may believe that Jesus is the king, the son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This Easter Sunday, the invitation to each of us, man, woman, teenager, child, boy, girl, the invitation is that we believe receive and really taste what real life is all about. Can, can we stand together and I, I'd like to pray a prayer of blessing over you this Easter Sunday. Whichever one of these characters you identify with, as we pray, why don't you just make that, turn that realization of where you are today into a prayer for yourself, for the person sitting next to you, that we'll all really see Jesus as he is. Lord God, we thank you for the good news of the resurrection. We thank you for the hope that we have because of the price that you paid for our sins on the cross. God, today some of us are like John. We've been serving you for a while. We know that we are loved by you. And yet there's, there, there is belief, but there's also a lack of understanding. We pray that God, this year would be a fresh discovery of who you are, a fresh desire to dig into your word, to grow in our knowledge of you. Lord, others today are like Peter, beat up by guilt from past mistakes. We pray for anyone like that today, that today you remind them that it's not their good works, but it's your finished work on the cross that takes away their guilt and sin, that they would experience joy and have that conversation about love with you that Peter did. Lord, for those today that are like Mary and they've seen you face to face and heard you speak their name, I pray that that excitement and joy would cause them to go and announce good news and bring your light to a lost and hurting world. 
Not for anyone today that's like a disciple behind locked doors living in fear. Bring hope today, God. Bring gladness. Bring awareness of that commission to unlock the door and go out into a world that's trapped in darkness to bring good news. And Lord, for any doubting Thomases today that are saying, I'll believe it when I see it. God, I pray that in both ways, as you did with Thomas, you give them the evidence they need to put faith in you. But you also rewarded them for beginning with belief by opening their eyes to see the truth. And God, today we give you thanks and praise. We thank you for this opportunity to gather in your name. We thank you now for families going out to celebrate today, to rejoice with feasting and joy that the Savior is risen, that you are the King. We give you thanks, and until your return, strengthen us, empower us, equip us to be your ambassadors in a dark and lost world. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.